It's recognized as one of the most influential horror films of all time. Due to its public domain status, it was also a staple of late-night television, which meant that more than a few kids were traumatized by it. In this episode, we discuss the 1968 classic Night of the Living Dead. This is Childhood Fears Revisited. Welcome to Childhood Fears Revisited, the podcast where we look under the bed. I'm your host, Patrick. And I'm Kat. And today we are going to discuss the 1968 horror classic, Night of the Living Dead. And we have a guest, Kat, who is with us today. Today our guest is Andrew Yinger. Andrew is a software developer. Andrew watched this movie when he was nine years old. Hello, Andrew. Welcome. Thank you so much. Nice introduction. Yeah, and by the way, guys, thanks for reintroducing me to one of the biggest nightmares of my young life when I saw this movie. (laughs) Well, that's what we're here for. (laughs) And Andrew, how did you come to watch this movie when you were at such a young age? I was the youngest, so I usually got dragged places. And in this particular case, I got dragged to a local movie theater by my two much older brothers. And they told me it was a documentary. (laughs) so i didn't really understand what the term documentary meant at the time i know that as an adult i just know that it scared the hoo-hoo out of me from the jump were you just consequentially for a period terrified of the documentary genre as a result of this (laughs) no i was looking in people's eyes to see if they were flesh eaters it seemed real to me particularly the very opening scene and that scene has never left me What's interesting about this film is it was shot in black and white in order to save money. In 68, obviously, color was the norm, but very low budget by George Romero. And I think the black and white is probably what did it. It gave it a very gritty, almost documentary feel. Mm -hmm. So I could understand where someone would mistake this for a documentary because it's shot and acted very naturalistically. Yep. And as a child of the 60s and 70s, I was used to watching a black and white TV. So it really seemed, it seemed like a newscast to me. That's what I felt when I was a kid. And of course, my antagonistic brothers reminded me that it was throughout that this could really happen. And that's why oh it's kind of stuck Lord. with me. You got the full treatment with this movie viewing yeah, experience. There- yeah, there's been paid back, payback over the course of life, but this was <laughs> definitely traumatic for me. <laughs> and this is the movie that really kicked off the entire zombie film genre. This is the patient zero of the zombie films, and George Romero obviously is the godfather of the zombie genre, which is ironic because they never actually use the term zombie in this movie. They refer to them as ghouls throughout the film. It wasn't until really much later that George Romero embraced the term zombie with some of the with some of the sequels to the film. Have you seen any of the sequels? I've seen all of them because I did create kind of a morbid fascination too. So I'm a big George Romero fan. And do you remember too, guys? We weren't really immersed in the whole slasher film genre yet. The gross-out films hadn't really started to happen yet. So when this came out, as graphic as it was, it was trailblazing in so many different ways. 
a lot of the things we'll talk about during the course of the podcast today will come out, but the racial divide and the gender divide, and it was just a trailblazing film. Yeah, this movie was very progressive, tackled issues like race, gender, trauma, and it was consciously so. I think a lot of movies, people read subtext into it. This one, it's right out on their sleeves. There was never a doubt that those are the issues that they were tackling in the film. So, Andrew, you saw this at nine and you've seen lots of zombie movies since, but how many times did you see this movie and when's the last time that you actually saw this movie? I didn't see this movie again till I was a young adult because honestly, the although I had seen a lot of other similar films and followed the genre because I was fascinated by it, this particular film is kind of a basket of maybe a dozen or so other films that I've seen during the course of my life that really made me uncomfortable to watch again. So I didn't watch it again until I was in my probably in my 30s. And then we saw it again recently. And and the trauma's kind of gone, but the memory is still there of how indelible it was and the impression it made on me. Because I remember in the course of history, my both my parents were very active politically and very active in the community related to race relations. And so the undertones that this film really presented, I thought, blazed the trail for other types of films that could present race relations in a way that made it a different angle for people to understand. And that's why I think it was trailblazing. Yeah, it still makes me uncomfortable to watch this film, even though I've seen a lot of those other films. But you specifically were avoiding rewatching this one? Yeah. And like I said, there there are a few other films like that have just always made me kind of uncomfortable or they were just so beyond the pale that it was just difficult. I mean, Apocalypse Now is kind of like that in a lot of ways because mm. it's just there's just so much disturbing about it. But this was one that really, it brought back the nightmares that you remember as a little kid for the really odd reasons that we all have them as little kids. And this movie haunted me for a long time. The Others was another horror film that did that for me as a kid because it was just so haunting that I thought it was real. But I always had a fascination. So I was like, I was trying to throw myself back into it to enable myself maybe to get over the fear. But it, in a way, it was just a reminder of how frightening it was as a little kid. And of course... My brothers could give a rip how I felt. They didn't care that I was up all night. <laughs> they, they satisfied their goal of terrorizing me, you know? Well, I really applaud you doing this and confronting this movie now at this point in your life. And I thank you for spending this time to do this with us. This is an honor. Thank you. No worries. It's a pleasure. I'll send you my bill for therapy. <laughs> so this movie actually has a similar place with me. I saw it very young, as I mentioned in the introduction. One of the oddities about this film is that it is in the public domain. The reason it's in the public domain is that due to an editing mistake during its initial release, they had left the copyright message off of the title card. So from the moment this movie first showed in theaters, it has been in the public domain, which meant that it was on late night television all the time. Now they had to edit out some of it because it was even by the 80s when I would have when I would have seen it as a child. There was it was still too gruesome to show on basic cable, but it was on there a lot and there are scenes in it that 
I remember very vividly as a child, which caused me not to want to watch this movie. I don't think I saw this film after I was a child until well into adulthood because I remember particular scenes and I remember it terrifying me. So this is one that's in my wheelhouse as well. When we come back, we will break down Night of the Living Dead. Welcome back. The movie opens with a brother and sister, Barbara and Johnny, driving to the cemetery to lay a wreath at the grave of their father. It takes place somewhere in Western Pennsylvania. They spend the first scene of the movie complaining about daylight savings time. Okay, this is one of my pet peeves. People complain about daylight savings time, which they're complaining about in this film. No one is upset about daylight savings time. What people are upset about is changing the clocks. Daylight savings time is fantastic. Standard time sucks. Changing the clocks suck. The only thing that's good is daylight savings time. (laughs) All right, noted. I just, I, whenever I hear people complain about it, I'm like, that is not the problem. It is not daylight savings time. It's just my, I have the little knit I like to pick there. But back in the cemetery, there is thunder and lightning, but only in the cemetery. There's not any thunder and lightning anywhere else in the movie. As they visit the grave, they see a man shambling towards them in the distance. Johnny begins to tease Barbara about being scared in the cemetery. Well, you used to really be scared here. Johnny... You're still afraid. Stop it now. I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. He'll hear you. So that is the most famous line in the movie. They're coming to get you, Barbara. And what I like about that is he's really speaking with the message and the cadence, the dialogue that this ghoul would be were he speaking. It syncs up just right. Well, in the childhood monster films also, the original Frankenstein and Dracula and the Mummy, his voice was reminiscent of Bela Lugosi in some of those films. And I think that's what started a little bit of my oh, this is going to be weird because I don't see a monster, but I feel like this is scary. And then it became scary shortly after that. (laughs) So the man in the cemetery attacks them. It kills Johnny, and I'm saying it consciously. It kills Johnny by bashing his head into a gravestone and chases Barbara back to her car. The ghoul tries to get into the car, but Barbara drives away, eventually crashing into a tree. The killing of Johnny for me, was one of those moments that I remember very deeply. And I felt watching it back, it's not graphic at all. It felt very graphic to me as a young kid. I think the sound design on it was very good. The fact that he just goes limp and lifeless, I don't think that had been seen in movies a lot. Usually people died very emotively in movies. Not in this one. He hits his head, he collapses, he dies. It's very similar in method to probably the one scene in any movie that scared me more than anything was the first 
killing in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. When he goes into the house and Leatherface hits him with a sledgehammer and he just drops lifelessly. We've seen so many slasher movies and so many deaths that are stylized and exaggerated. There's just something about that collapsing that's just like, oh, that person's dead. And I think on the subject of the documentary, it feels very real. Yeah. It doesn't feel like you're watching a movie. It feels like you're watching something that's actually happening. And that's how I felt about Johnny's death because he hits his head and it's just dead like that. Yeah, that's for me. I agree, Patrick. That's for me where the fear really started to filter into my brain because it seemed, it made it seem real. It was visceral and it was violent, but it wasn't so obviously graphic that it was a movie to me. And of course, it reinstilled the fear that was the whole objective of my brothers taking me to the movie to begin with, that this really happened. This is a newsreel. And it just felt like that to me too. And so I was waiting for the next scene, like, this is how it starts. And she barely escapes with her life. And who is this crazy man? Not knowing yet that there was more to it than just a crazy man. So I think we should state here that we will use ghoul and zombie and undead interchangeably. But as we mentioned earlier, they never use the term zombie. I don't think they use the term undead technically, even though they do refer to the dead rising. But for the most part, they refer to them as ghouls, but we'll use those interchangeably. So after she crashes her car, the zombie chases her to an abandoned farmhouse. Barbara goes in, the phone's dead. Pretty soon, the house is being surrounded by zombies. The house is where the rest of the movie will take place, which I have always thought was a very interesting and creative, dramatic device. Night of the Living Dead, to me, feels very much like a play. Even though there's all these things going on outside, even though there's horrible things happening, it is a very contained narrative. It's all about the interplay of these people within the house, and you feel like this could actually be performed on a stage. There's a great movie called Pontypool. Have either of you ever seen it? No. No, I haven't seen it. So Pontypool came out, I don't know, a few years ago, and it is absolutely fantastic. And it has a lot of the DNA of Night of the Living Dead. It takes place in a radio station somewhere in Ontario in like a backwoods town. It's a very small town, but there is a zombie infestation. But what's interesting about the movie is I don't know if you ever actually see any of the zombies. If you do, it's very brief. And the movie takes place, it's basically the interaction of these three people in the radio station, along with some of the people calling in, and there's occasionally some other people show up. But at most, you're talking maybe five people in the movie total. And it's all about them dealing with the situation and hearing the reports very similar to the news reports that you hear in this film, trying to figure out what's going on and trying to communicate to people what's going on outside. And it's absolutely terrifying, but just like this movie, it's all about the character development. It's not about the monsters. It's not about the gore. It's about the interactions of the humans. 
And that's what I think this movie does so well. And I appreciate it so much more now than I did when I was younger, when I was focused on the flesh-eating zombies. Well, and I think them being captive in the house also is what got me. And I thought that was a very effective part of the film, that it forced you to look at the interplay with the characters because they weren't out fighting the battles. They hadn't quite figured it out yet. And the difference in, in ages, in race, in opinions, and all that came out through the script which made it really interesting. And then now having seen it as an adult a couple of times, it's a much deeper film than I think it was originally given credit for. George Romero was way ahead of his time. He turned what was a low-budget horror film into really more of an art house intellectual exercise. Well, it answers the question why it all took place in the house too, Patrick. <laughs> they didn't have budget. They didn't have budget for a studio. Which is interesting because I think that's why those 60s and 70s film directors and the people who came out of that, you think about the people who came out of like the Roger Corman school. If you look at the people who Roger Corman mentored and brought along, these are people who started on those very low budget films and learned to do things really on the cheap and learned that rather than having a lot of money, you really have to make it a story-driven film. When you have too big of a budget, sometimes you focus on the spectacle and you really don't focus on the story. And these are people who learned you need to focus on the story because you don't have the money to focus on the spectacle. Yeah, I think so, some of the great directors now that have the budget are also still very loyal to the bedrock, which is what they're trying to demonstrate and show through the script. And Guillermo del Toro is, is one of those directors because he does some very oddball creatures and characters. Yes, they're big budget films because of where we are in history now. But I think that loyalty to the script, I think, makes them a little a little scarier and a little deeper. So you're actually listening a little bit more. Yeah, and you can definitely tell someone like him, this is the type of movie that he grew up on. The old style horror movies. One thing I like about him is his embracing of a lot of practical effects because let's face it when you know if you just can design it on a computer you can do it but there's a lot of love that goes into practical effects and when you watch a movie like this when you watch old horror films that had to rely on practical effects there is a realness about it i could go on about this all day but when it's all digital these people aren't really acting with things they're acting in front of a green screen. There's something to be said about somebody who's acting with a person in a monster outfit that looks horrifying versus somebody who's looking at a tennis ball on a stick. <laughs> this house, I think, adds another really good dimension to make it even scarier. A horror film is going to be as effective as you can relate to the victims. It could have gone anywhere. They could have gone into one of their own houses. But the fact that they went into this stranger's house, this unknown house where none of them had been before, they're more relatable to us than we are to them because we haven't been in this house and we're exploring it as they're exploring it. When we first enter the house, it's limitless. Who knows how big this house is? Who knows what's in here? What the resource is? And as we spend more and more time in it, and we become more familiar with the house and all these odd objects in it that clash with our characters who are in there, it's become smaller because we become, we realize what the boundaries are and that's how it starts to to close in and become more claustrophobic because we know 
exactly how much space we have and exactly what the resources are just as they do as they go. I think that works really well. Well, and I think that I think the relatable side of that cat is what also made it scary and I think real for a wider audience because it was such an eclectic group of people that were trapped in this house. I think everybody can place themselves behind the eyes of one of those people from the little girl all the way up to the the detractor that didn't want to do anything and was it was fighting the power of the the black character that was tr- really concertedly trying to get stuff done and trying to save their lives. Just the cross-section of people, I think, is what also made it interesting. Good point. Inside, Barbara finds the rather juicy corpse of the former occupant. She tries to flee the house, but is stopped by an African-American man coming in named Ben, whose truck ran out of gas by the farmhouse. It's all right. Don't worry about him, I can handle him. Probably be a lot more of them as soon as they find out about us. The truck is out of gas. This pump out here is locked. Is there a key? We can try to get out of here if we can get some gas. Is there a key? So let's discuss the choice of casting an African-American man as the lead. In a movie in 1968. Bold. I would call that bold. Definitely progressive. Yeah. And in my mind, I'm thinking, is this going to cause more conflict because he's the only black guy? Being in a part of the country that was well integrated, but I was actually a Caucasian kid that was bussed into black sections of town. So I'm used to seeing things both ways. And I thought, is there now just going to be conflict because of the race? Or wait a minute, he's got a strong voice here. Maybe he's going to be the hero. Wow. And and that's what I thought in my mind. This guy could be the hero. And let's just say, and the actor's name is Dwayne Jones, who plays Ben. He's a tremendous actor, by far the best actor in the movie. And when George Romero was asked about that, about his choice of a leading man, that was his answer. It was like, he was the best actor among anybody he knew. He was a pro. So not only did George Romero pick this guy for obvious story reasons, but he also recognized the talent of the actor. And he really does a good job of carrying a lot of the movie. But that's not to denigrate the other actors in the film, because I really don't think that there's a bad performance in the entire movie. At first, I thought there was going to be a specific point to him being black in this movie. Like, there was going to be a statement. But eventually, just forgot all about the fact that he was and was just compelled by the story. And it just turned out to be, just happened to be black kind of thing. And I think that's probably what it was so transgressive about it at the time because you think about the movies that were made with leading men who were black at that time period most of which were starring Sidney Poitier they were conscious about the fact that he was a black man it's in the heat of the night guess who's coming to dinner that was the reason he was there the movie was about his blackness And that was what I related to as watching movies in the 70s as a very young 
person was exactly that. So when Dwayne showed up, I stood up to attention to see what heavy-handed lesson was coming next and what awful challenges were going to come before him. I think you could have legitimately cast anybody in that role. George Romero just happened to cast a black man. Cast the best actor. Which is not something that happened back then. You just didn't cast an actor who happened to be black. You cast a black man because the role required a black man. So what and what could be more progressive than that decision? Well, and I think that the film started to accelerate so much when he entered the scene after he ran out of gas that to Kat's point, I think you you forgot about the race relations aspect of it. There was it was a subliminal thing. Because you felt that there was a little bit of racism there coming from some of the other characters there. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. boy, is there. But it wasn't like so <laughs> in your face that you're like, oh, man, I wish they hadn't gone down that trail, you know? Okay, so Ben immediately tries to put a plan together for them to escape while Barbara, understandably, goes bonkers. Ben bludgeons a few zombies with a tire iron, all the while keeping his Mr. Rogers sweater pristine. It is interesting that the script recognizes that the zombies are not people. Ben uses the pronoun it. When I was writing the script for this, I went back and changed the he's and she's and the pronouns for the zombies to it because he readily recognizes the lack of humanity in these zombies. And I thought that was a very astute move from a screenwriting standpoint. Well, and when the term flesh eating came into the film, I think that put, a, I think, an exclamation point on that it reference also, because they just became monsters. They weren't people anymore, even after the people that we'd known alive became one. So Ben lights a zombie corpse on fire, and we establish that the zombies are afraid of fire. Ben sets to work barricading the house, which leads to an amazing exchange where he shows his kindness and empathy. Why don't you see if you can find some wood, some boards, something about the fireplace, something we can nail this place up. Look, I know you're afraid. I'm afraid too. But we have to try to board the house up together. Now, I'm going to board up the windows and the doors. Do you understand? We'll be all right here. We'll be all right here until someone comes to rescue us. But we'll have to work together. You'll have to help me. Now, I want you to go in and get some wood so I can board the place up. Do you understand? Okay? Okay? So Barbara, who is played by Judith O'Day, may be one of the most maligned characters in the history of film. I think when people first watch this movie, there's a lot of angst towards Barbara because she is freaking out during the entire movie. And I think the word annoying comes into play often. But I need to put forth a defense of Barbara. Barbara helps the best she can while clearly in shock. This is one of the most realistic depictions of trauma in the history of film. There's been a lot of hate for Barbara over the years, including by me, but she is acting like a human would in this situation. George Romero is telling us through Ben in this scene that we should treat her with understanding and that she deserves it in this situation. 
Ben and the others are being attacked by zombies too, but at this point in the movie, she is the only one to witness firsthand the death of a loved one. Well, and to me, it raised the respect, I think, the character of Ben had in the film because he showed so much depth of character in that scene by creating empathy with a woman that was going out of her mind that we were hoping the zombies killed next. The nexus was, we. I'm trying to save you guys. You need to help me save us. And he became, there was a different layer to his personality, which I thought was really cool that he instantly became the leader instead of just somebody that was badgering them and trying to push them to do something they weren't comfortable with. And, and by re-watching this, and I've seen this movie a ton of times, this is the first time I really understood what George Romero was trying to do with Ben in that scene. I think in a lot of cases, in a lot of films, especially around that time, the hysterical woman would have been treated very cruelly. There would not have been any empathy for her. But even though Ben starts to lose his temper with her at the very beginning, he soon realizes when he looks into her eyes that how scared she is and backs off and, like you said, Andrew, becomes a leader and realizes, yeah, I can yell at her, I can scream at her, but she is going through a lot. I shouldn't make this worse for her than it already is, which I just thought was a beautiful scene. At this point, Ben tells Barbara his story. This is the first time he really lets his guard down, and we understand that even though he didn't see a loved one die, he's traumatized too. They're afraid of fire. I found that out. You know a place back down the road called Beekman's? Beekman's Diner? Anyhow, that's where I found that truck I have out there. There's a radio in the truck. I jumped in to listen to it. When a big gasoline truck came screaming right across the road, with it must have been 10, 15 of those things chasing after it, grabbing and holding on. Now, I didn't see them at first. I could just see that the truck was moving in a funny way. And those things were catching up to it. The truck went right across the road. Slammed on my brakes to keep from hitting it myself. It went right through the guardrail. I guess, I guess the driver must have cut off the road into that gas station by Beekman's Diner. It went right through the billboard, ripped over a gas pump, and never stopped moving. By now, it's like a moving bonfire. Didn't know if the truck was going to explode or what. Still hear the man screaming. This thing is just backing away from it. I looked back at the diner to see if, if there was anyone there who could help me. It was when I noticed that the entire place had been encircled. There wasn't a sign of life left except... By now there were no more screams. I realized that I was alone with 
50 or 60 of those things just standing there staring at me. I, I started to drive. I just plowed right through them. They didn't move. They didn't run or just stood there staring at me. Just wanted to crush them. He really shows his acting chops in that scene. Yeah, and back to this being a low-budget film, George Romero could have filmed all of that action and put it on the screen, but what made it more chilling was just the description and you creating that in your own mind. And I, I remember really well turning to my brothers and saying, that didn't really happen, did it? And they reminded me that it did, and they just don't have it on film yet. So these are some of the things I remember. That I'm, and then now when I'm just listening to it again, without the visual, it makes it more interesting, Patrick, because without the visual, I remember that palpable feeling in my nine-year-old heart saying, holy crap, it just started to scare the hell out of me. You know, there's a saying in filmmaking, show, don't tell. But sometimes telling is effective. Yeah, no doubt. Ghost stories. That is extremely effective storytelling. They didn't have the budget to film it, but his delivery, the narrative is spot on. It's not a short speech that lasted, what, two or three minutes. What it reminds me of a lot is Quint's Indianapolis speech in Jaws. Robert Shaw gives that three or four minute monologue about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. Could Steven Spielberg have showed that? Yes. Would it have been nearly as memorable as Robert Shaw just sitting at the table telling that story in a riveting fashion? Absolutely not. Yeah, and describing men in the water screaming as they're being devoured by sharks is to me, a lot scarier than actually creating that on film. And it was the same thing here. The way he said they scattered like bugs and then they just stared at me. I was envisioning that in my head and that's what made it scary. Brilliant scene, brilliantly performed. Makes it obvious why he was chosen to be the lead. So that scene allows Barbara to open up about her experience. She recounts the attack in the cemetery and she is in denial of Johnny's death. She's experiencing the first stage of grief. We were riding in the cemetery, Johnny and me. Johnny. We we came to put a wreath on my father's grave. Johnny and, and he said, I have some candy, Barbara. Um, we didn't have any. And... Oh, it's hot in here. Hot. And, and he said, oh, it's late. Why did we start so late? And I said, Johnny, 
If you'd gotten up earlier, we wouldn't be late. Johnny asked me if I were afraid. And I said, I'm not afraid, Johnny. And then this man started walking up the road. He came slowly, and Johnny kept teasing me and saying, he's coming to get you, Barbara. And I laughed at him and said, Johnny, stop it. And then Johnny ran away. And I, I went up to this man, and I was going to apologize. Why don't you just keep calm? And I looked up, and I said, Goody. And he grabbed me. He grabbed me, and he ripped at me. He held me, and he ripped at my clothes. I think you should just calm down. Oh, oh I screamed, Johnny! Johnny, help me! Oh, help me! And he wouldn't let me go. He ripped. And then Johnny came, and he ran, and he, he fought this man. And... I got so afraid, I ran, I ran, I ran, <laughs> and Johnny didn't come. We've got, we have to wait for Johnny. Maybe we better go out and get him. We have to go out and get Johnny. He's out there. Please, don't you hear me? We've got to go out and get him. Please! We have got to go get Johnny! Please help me! Please! Don't you know what's going on out there? This is no Sunday school picnic. Don't you understand? My brother is alone! Your brother is dead. No! My brother is not dead! Okay, I said the movie was progressive, but it was still 1968. In 1968, progressive is only slapping a woman after she slaps you. So there is a little little light abuse in the film. But just like the diner story that Ben tells, very similar style here with Barbara telling her story, which I think is interesting in its own way, considering the fact that this is something that we did actually witness in the film. You brought up a good point, though, that she's retelling something here that we actually saw, and it's still deeply effective as the previous monologue when Ben describes something that we did not see. Because in her retelling, we have to revisit and reanalyze our perception of what happened with her, which makes us completely invested in her at this point. And I went back, I was interested to see if her telling of it if it matched, right? Matched yeah. what the actual scene was. And it actually is pretty close. So her memory of it is pretty close to what actually happens, but her telling of it and the things in it that really impacted her 
are slightly different than what your takeaway is from the original scene. Like, she is really traumatized by him grabbing her. And it's just a brief moment, but she really spends a lot of time on when the ghoul grabs her in the cemetery and talking about him clawing at her and ripping at her clothes. And when you watch it, it doesn't look like it's that much going on, but she's a person. She experienced this. I could totally see where her interpretation would be the guy was grabbed me and ripping at my clothes. Yeah, and up to that point, she wasn't really that sympathetic a character. We all thought she was a little annoying up to that point. And then when she vocalized it and relived that story, it brought it to life. Suddenly she was scared and you understood why she was so hysterical. One thing she did just omit was her kind of teasing banter back and forth with her brother just before that, which to me made this so convincing of their relationship, that little teasing when she says, you're ignorant. I was, golly, Ned, now that's a legitimate sibling reaction right there. Like in that moment, there's no question that this is siblings. You're ignorant. They could have been five years old, but they're 25. They've been siblings all their life. Love that. And the fact that she doesn't even bring that into the story is just compounds the realism of that for me. Ben finds a rifle and ammo and then turns on the radio and starts to listen to the emergency broadcast. The broadcasters talk about a space anomaly that is causing dead people to become flesh eaters. Consistent reports from witnesses to the effect that people who acted as though they were in a kind of trance were killing and eating their victims prompted authorities to examine the bodies of some of the victims. Medical authorities in Cumberland have concluded that in all cases, the killers are eating the flesh of the people they murdered. Repeating this latest bulletin just received moments ago from Cumberland, Maryland, civil defense authorities have told newsmen that murder victims show evidence of having been partially devoured by their murderers. Medical examination of victims' bodies shows conclusively that the killers are eating the flesh of the people they kill. And so this incredible story becomes more ghastly with each report. It's difficult to imagine such a thing actually happening, but these are the reports we have been receiving and passing on to you, reports which have been verified as completely as is possible in this confused situation. It is happening, and it would appear that no one is safe from this wave of mass So this is another technique that George Romero uses to supplement the budget of the film. Rather than show all those things, have the radio announcement tell you what's going on. When I listen to this, it reminds me of the War of the Worlds broadcast because that's what you're listening to. There's no visuals at this point. There's no visuals, no nothing. It's a radio broadcast. It sounds very real. It's very convincing. And it gives you a lot of the backstory of what's happening out beyond the walls of the house. You know, it's played so realistically that it's so convincing but also it demands focus, just as listening to news on the radio always did. You had to be quiet. Everybody in the house had to be quiet. And I just noticed for the first time the sound of one of the, I can't see it right now, but one of the characters walked across the floor at one point in there and you hear 
those steps on the wood. And that I just noticed that and realized, wow, that makes it so real. Because if you can picture yourself being in this situation with people in a tense situation, you're all locked onto this medium, onto the radio. You have to be quiet to hear this vital information. There's always somebody who's going to do something. <laughs> somebody pacing back yeah. and forth, in this case, barricading a house. Because, you know, they didn't have to put that sound effect in there. And I'm going to give Romero the cred that uh, he he was brilliant enough. That was deliberate. Yeah, and it also feeds back into our, our comments earlier about the fact that it was a low-budget film. Um, not having certain license to do certain things like putting a spaceship in the sky and talking about how this anomaly actually happened and a bunch of planets floating around or whatever special effects they could afford. They didn't have to do that. And I thought it made it way more effective. And by the way, it also played into the neuroses of my brothers because I remember looking at them when that radio was on during the scene saying, that sounds like it's a real deuce cast. And they said, well, Duh, it is. This is real. What a couple of yeah, assholes. Seriously. And <laughs> well, the, the funny part of that, though, is by extension, months later, we'd be listening to the radio and one of them would jump up and go turn the radio off and they'd say, we don't want to scare you. It's another broadcast about the zombies. <laughs> <laughs> that worked for a long time. Oh, my God. Devious. <laughs> This was... It worked until I was 45. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This Sick was... bastards cost me millions in therapy. Wow. <laughs> They're thorough. Like, they were dedicated to a scare, man. Oh, yeah. There, there was no limit. There was no limit to the younger brother torture. <laughs> so does it give you a little bit of distance from it now to be recalling it? Or does it magnify it because you remember and you feel that as well? Well, I think it's nice at this stage to intellectualize a lot of it. Because I think that's the way a lot of us get over fears that we have or fears that are created in our lives is to try to figure out the logic behind it. And just knowing that I have sick brothers makes me realize that there's nothing I can do about it. I'm glad I'm over it. And talking about it always makes it help. <laughs> well, good. That's what we're here for. <laughs> no, you guys are going to send me a bill. That's what it goes to. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> ben continues his work barricading the house. And then two men emerged from the basement. They were in the basement hiding the entire time with their wives and one child. They are Harry and Tom. Tom is an affable young man, while Harry is a middle-aged blowhard who immediately tries to boss Ben around. You just got finished saying you couldn't hear from down there. Now you say it sounded like the place was being ripped apart. It would be nice if you'd get your story straight, man. All right, now you tell me. I'm not going to take that kind of a chance where we got a safe place. We luck into a safe place, and you're telling us we got to risk our lives just because somebody might need help, huh? Yeah, something like that. All right, why don't we settle this? Well, mister, we came up. Okay, we're here. Now I suggest we all go back downstairs before any of those things find out we're in here. They can't get in here. You got the whole place boarded up? Yeah, most of it. I'll put a few spots upstairs. They won't be hard to fix. You're insane. The cellar's the safest place. I'm telling you, they can't get in here. And I'm telling you, those things turned over our car. We were damn lucky to get away at all. Now you tell me those, those things can't get through this lousy pile of wood? His wife and kids downstairs. The kids are... So we finally met Harry. Seems like a nice gentleman. Just a general 
hint to anybody if you're trying to hide from flesh-eating zombies. Keep it down. <laughs> Use your indoor voices. <laughs> And don't hide in the basement. And we all just admit that Harry just wants to use the N-word so bad in this scene. Obvious hostility. Yeah. He's a 1968 middle-aged white guy. He is not progressive. Well, the fact that he didn't use the N-word is probably considered progressive for the time. I was glad it didn't go that way. Because I thought the die had already been cast for Ben being the go-to person. Yep. And and feeling the fear of the film as a kid, I wanted Ben to keep going down that track because I wanted somebody to be able to fight off the zombies. And the blowhard, in your words, is getting in the way. So your hope is in him as a hero already. So you yep. want to not have that threatened because then all hope is lost. He's convincingly instilled hope in you, even as a child. But I think through his personality and his savviness, Ben sort of reasserts the dominant role in the house. He stays calm. He doesn't completely lose his temper towards Harry, even though Harry's being really unreasonable. Ultimately, Tom and his wife, Judy, come upstairs while Harry locks himself, his wife, and his child in the basement. Harry clearly loves his daughter, but his marriage is unhappy. Let them stay upstairs. Let them. Too many ways those monsters can get in up there. We'll see who's right. We'll see when they come begging me to let them in down here. That's important, isn't it? What? To be right, everybody else to be wrong. What do you mean by that? Does anyone up there know why we're being attacked? <sighs> Whatever it is, it isn't just happening here. It's some kind of mass murder. It's going on everywhere. The radio said to stay inside. Radio? Radio upstairs. I heard a news bulletin. There's a radio upstairs and you boarded us in down here? I know what I'm doing. What did it say? Nothing. Nothing. They don't know anything yet. There's mass murder everywhere and, and people are supposed to look for a safe place to hide. Take the boards off that door. We are staying down here, Helen. Harry, that radio is at least some kind of communication. If the authorities know what's happening, well, they'll send people for us so they tell us what to do. How are we going to know what's going on if we lock ourselves in this dungeon? We may not enjoy living together, but dying together isn't going to solve anything. Those people aren't our enemies. Helen is not happy with being in the basement and convinces Harry to let them go upstairs with the rest. In the meantime, Ben and Tom have hooked up a TV and we get an update. This conference of the presidential cabinet, the FBI, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the CIA, has not produced any public information. Why are space experts being consulted about an earthbound emergency? So far, all the betting on the answer to that question centers on the recent Explorer satellite shot to Venus. That satellite, you'll recall, started back to Earth, but never got here. That's the space vehicle which orbited Venus and then perp was purposely destroyed by NASA when scientists discovered it was carrying a mysterious high-level radiation with it. Could that radiation be somehow responsible for the wholesale murders we're now suffering? So this is where I actually misremembered the movie. I always thought that they didn't explain why the dead started rising. And in this scene, they explain it's a satellite that went to Venus, came back with some mysterious radiation. They must have known that it was bad news. They blew it out of the sky, but 
still had enough power to raise the dead on the entire eastern half of the United States. Well, and that's what I started to feel better thinking it was just one part of the country. Because I said, where did it crash? Oh, yeah, this takes place in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay, then I guess we're safe. Well, I don't know. You know, it's funny how you think about those things when you're a kid. I always tell my brother the story about when I was young, he and I shared a bedroom. And my brother was quite a bit older than I am. And... When it came time to picking who slept where, I always made sure he was closer to the door. That way, if Jason came in, <laughs> Jason would murder him first. You only got to be faster than one. I could get out the window. Very shrewd. Very shrewd. So I think as a child, you have this innate survival yeah. instinct. And when you hear that, oh, well, this happened on the East Coast, screw all those people east of the Mississippi. Exactly. So the news says that there are safe zones that people should flee to. Ben hatches a plan to get out that involves Tom fueling the truck while he and Harry clear the way. Judy, Tom's wife, does not want Tom to go alone and joins him in the truck. Things do not go as planned and the truck blows up, killing Tom and Judy. Rest in peace. So they try to escape. Judy jumps into the truck. The zombies attack. Ben and Harry can't keep all the zombies away, and the truck explodes, killing two of the characters. Ben is trapped outside, but Harry, who gets into the house first, refuses to open the door. Ben finally breaks down the door, and Harry helps board it up, but Ben proceeds to beat the hell out of Harry. I'm going to ask you guys, what was your impression of Harry in this scene? I tried in my mind to rehabilitate him the same way that I rehabilitated Barbara. So he's in the house, the doors are shut, he and his family are protected. There's somebody outside saying, you need to let me in, you need to let me in, you need to let me in. Harry obviously is thinking hard about it because he doesn't want any of the ghouls to get in to get him and his family. It's not just him. He's also protecting his family. And then he eventually does open the door, belatedly. Ben whips his ass. What's your thought on that? Does Harry deserve to be reevaluated in this scene, given what he had at stake by opening the door? Or is he just a straight up bad human being? I felt that it opened the door for Ben to get back to the hero chair because he was now somehow held at bay by the protective instincts of the husband who's protecting his wife and daughter, that because the ass whooping was so deserved from earlier, I felt that it was overdue and this could even the playing field again. And now he could go along, follow the rules and help protect them once he let Ben in the door. So that was the one scene in this whole film that I somehow got unscared for a minute because I felt there was justice being done and he was finally being brought to task. But it was right after this scene, after he got let in the house, that the film went from really scary to horrifying when the next scene came up. And so it was like a way of lightening the mood for making you feel better for a second that there was some comeuppance there that led right into, I think, the horror of about the last 20 minutes of the film. So let's talk about the next scene, which is graphic and infamous. This is the scene where the zombies are eating the entrails of Tom and Judy. This is so vivid in my mind. Such simple images because it was in black and white and it was a night scene shot in the dark. It had just enough 
obscuring of the visual details that it just left the majority of you for your mind to fill in every little detail and it becomes so real and it was so quiet and that's another piece that really stuck with me and maybe it's because the scene immediately preceded it and even right after it are so loud but this one was just on its own in the silence and it gave you this is the only one that really gave you a feel for this is what it's like to be out in the wild to be a wildlife zombie it's quiet it's silent it's calm you're chewing you're eating and there's nothing else in your world and there's nothing else that matters or is in your brain there's no chaos it's just still it's inevitability it also to me illustrated the brilliance of george romero because this wasn't just somebody with an obvious leg bone or an obvious arm bone or chewing on somebody's face, which we've all kind of gotten well, used to. Well, there was to. the hand. It was, well, there was that. But for me, it was the hunkering down and the entrails. And I, I remember shaking my head and looking away and looking back like, I didn't really just see that, did I? Because very, it was just very stark and obscured almost. It was just... Well, everything up to this point has relied so heavily on your imagination and your mind conjuring images of narration. And we've been on a single set house. This is such a stark contrast. It just comes out with guns ablazing to that graphic visual imagery. And it's bam, like he's, he pulled this punch. Romero held this punch for so long until you were totally lulled that we're never, we're never it, all right it's scary but we don't really actually see anything in this movie and then boom and i think that's why it's so darn effective and this is the scene that i think the documentary style really makes a difference there's nothing stylized about it there's nothing over the top it is filmed in a way that is just so matter-of-fact about what's going on. It's almost like you're just watching lions on the Serengeti eating a gazelle. It almost looks like a nature documentary. Because, like you said, Kat, there's no flashy music or sounds. It's just the zombies just sitting around, squatting on the ground, very animalistically, just Eaten poor Tom. Yeah, like if it had gone on for another two or three minutes, I wouldn't have been surprised to hear David Attenborough come in and say, and here we <laughs> see the zombie. Well, at that point, mutant, at that point, mutual <laughs> of <right>. Omaha. <laughs> well, it's funny you should mention that too, Kat, because it, it, in my mind, it reminded me of newsreels also of Vietnam and the napalm falling, hearing about people burning to death. Because the zombies were now, they weren't just eating anybody on the road. They were eating the bodies in the burned up truck. Yeah, they were. Th those bodies were well done. Yeah, it was a barbecue. And that that that's what made it scarier for me because I'm like, So do you think God. that this was very much in the style of those newscasts? Because you have to tell us about that because we didn't see those. Very much because they were like on, on the ground, handheld camera, shaking images, black and white, very grainy and snippets of things. And you've seen the famous life picture of the little girl nude because she just stripped all of her clothes off because she was on fire running down this road in Vietnam and seeing the burned bodies and just, it was just grotesque and horrifying. And yet the zombies were now, this was their picnic. 
It was just a weird juxtaposition. I think there was, and I don't know if that was intentional by George Romero or not. And I'm actually just thinking about that now and connecting the dots that maybe there was something there to make it even more visceral for people that are all the PTSDs from people coming back from war and all the protests and everything that were going on in the States at that particular point in time. Because right, this could have been anywhere. They could have been in a house or a car hunkered down, but they were out in the wild at night. So they're in a truer natural state in, of environment at this point than any of the human characters are. So in that sense, it feels like they, they've they taken over. Well, yeah. And also the scene for me was interesting because it was a, is a release from the cliche that whatever the central character says, hey, we got to go get some gas and the zombies are, they're afraid of fire or fires. You're like, oh my God, the truck's going to blow up. Oh my God, the gas station is going to blow up. Something terrible is going to happen. There's going to be fire. And so that you kind of expected it. And then when it got to the point that you were actually seeing them eating the people that were in the burned out truck, that just blew all that away. It just became more horrifying. Well, the team is now in the house. They regroup. Tom and Judy are dead. They switch on the TV and they get an update. All law enforcement agencies and the military have been organized to search out and destroy the marauding ghouls. The Survival Command Center at the Pentagon has disclosed that a ghoul can be killed by a shot in the head or a heavy blow to the skull. Officials are quoted as explaining that since the brain of a ghoul has been activated by the radiation, the plan is kill the brain and you kill the ghoul. Why are you thinking from the supply wagon, Tess? Uh, no, we're all right. Hey, Gas, put that thing all the way in the fire. We don't want it getting up again. Chief, Chief McClellan, how's everything going? Oh, things aren't going too bad. Men are taking it pretty good. You want to get on the other side of the road over there? Chief, do you think we'll be able to defeat these things? Well, we killed 19 of them today right in this area. Those last three we caught trying to claw their way into an abandoned shed. They must have thought somebody was in there. There wasn't, though. We heard them making all kind of noise. We came over and beat them off, blasted them down. Chief, the your fish. Can I see you here? Yeah, okay. Chief, uh, if I were surrounded by six or eight of these things, would I stand a chance with them? Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot them in the head. That's a sure way to kill them. If you don't, get yourself a club or a torch. Beat them or burn them. They go up pretty easy. Well, Chief McClellan, how long do you think it will take you until you get the situation under control? Well, that's pretty hard to say. We don't know how many of them there are. We know when we find them, we can kill them. Are they slow moving, Chief? Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Well, uh, in time, would you say you ought to be able to wrap this up in 24 hours? Well, we don't really know. We know we'll be into it most of the night, probably into the early morning. We're working our way toward Willard, and we'll team up with the National Guard over there, and then we'll be able to give a more definite view. Thank you very much, Chief McClellan. This is Bill Cardill, WIC TV 11. But the team doesn't have hope for long. The zombies attack the house and Ben drops the rifle trying to block them out. Harry grabs it and threatens Ben. A struggle ensues and Ben shoots Harry. Harry then stumbles into the basement where he is eaten by his now zombified daughter. Helen goes to the basement and is killed by her daughter, psycho style, with a trowel. Baby. 
this is the scene that's burned into my memory. So there are a couple of things that I remember vividly. One is the horror of seeing a daughter eating her father. And when I say eating her father, I don't mean she's just gnawing on a bone. She is knee deep in entrails, eating the viscera of her father. And to have her mother show up and see this and see her daughter eating her husband and the mother trying to obviously communicate with her daughter and still having love for her daughter and then have her daughter stab her to death with a trowel, stabbing her what seems like a hundred times. That is just a horrifying spectacle. And I think it's the intra-family piece of it that is so horrifying to me. It's the dead daughter. It's the eating of the father. It's the murder of the mother. I did find it interesting that he chose to, in one of the rare instances where he stylized something in the movie, stylizing the screams of the mother. It's an interesting choice, but I don't know why he would have done it. Maybe the blood-curdling screams could have just been too much for people. But this is the scene that kept me from watching this movie for 25 years. Yeah, it, I felt like there was a little ode to Hitchcock in this scene also, because the shower scene in Psycho, it was just it was that scene with a lot more blood and just a lot more disturbing because there was the, you know, there's the innocence of a young girl who's been defiled by these zombies, and now she's suddenly defiling her own family. For me, that was also really terrifying. And it's so sudden because there's a triple whammy here. Oh, she's a zombie. Oh, she's eating her father. Oh, she's stabbing her mother. So again, Romero is one hell of a boxer here. He has just hit with this three-shot combination out of nowhere. (laughs) And man, what a heavy hitter. Very effective. When I was glad it was a trowel and not a chainsaw, I thought it was much more effective. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I feel that this is the most shocking scene in the movie. I know that eating the entrails, the scene before is very vivid, but the personal aspect of this is just horrifying. But while this is going on downstairs, upstairs, the zombies have breached the defenses. They've broken through the boards. They grab Barbara She's attacked and she's killed by Johnny. She's torn apart by Johnny and the other ghouls, which means the only one left is Ben. Ben, ironically, locks himself in the basement, the one place he didn't want to go, shoots the potential zombies in the head, meaning the daughter, the mother, and the father in the basement, just shoots them, makes sure that they don't return from the dead. So at this point, Ben looks invincible, right? He has risen to the status of hero that we hoped and had faith in him all along that he could become. And we're 100% invested. He is our only remaining hope. And I feel like, hey, he's going to do it. He's got this. Don't, did you guys feel like that? Yep. Yep. And I suddenly started to feel better at this point thinking, all right, at least somebody yeah. survived this. So it's daybreak. We cut to Chief McClellan and his posse moving towards the farmhouse, clearing out zombies. Ben emerges from the basement, and this happens. You, drag that out of here and throw it on the fire. Nothing down here. All right, go ahead, Don, and give him a hand. Let's go check out the house. There's something there. I heard a noise. All right, Vince, hit him in the head, right between the eyes. 
Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire. And in the ultimate irony, Ben is killed by a policeman who thinks he's a zombie. It's just stunning. I was absolutely gobsmacked at that. I literally opened my mouth and looked over at my brothers and said, oh my God. Because it took the last hope away of not having nightmares that night. I thought that Ben had survived this and we could actually find a way to fight him off. And yet... How do they not know that he wasn't a zombie? Which makes you wonder how many other non-zombies they killed that night. Yeah, exactly. It's so utterly realistic. It's like, even at this moment, I felt like all along, like I'm playing along with a movie. At that moment, it almost broke right through into reality for reals. Like you said, gobsmacked is the perfect term for that. Stunning, brilliant, masterful. And to just pull the plug and have that be the end of the movie. Wow. But here's the thing. It's not really the end of the movie because over the credits, we watch the bodies of the people that we just spent the entire film with get carted out of the house and burned. And think about the slasher genre, which we've talked about a couple of times on this podcast previously. There's always a final girl. There's always a survivor to always give you a sense of hope at the end of the movie. That not all hope is lost, that there is some brightness in the world. This movie throws that right out the window. Nope. Everything in this movie is hopeless, and you're all going to die. Yeah, it's a very grim ending, but as Andrew, you said, I don't think the movie would be as affecting if it didn't have this end. So that brings us to the end of Night of the Living Dead. So, Andrew... We are going to ask you the question that we ask at the end of every episode. Night of the Living Dead. As scary, less scary, or more scary than you remember it as a child? I want to say as scary because it was super traumatic for me. And I think, Kat, when we talked about this early on, we talked about a couple of horror films. But this among them, I think, was so trailblazing that it made it an interesting topic for me, especially now to intellectualize some of this stuff with you guys but also to really recognize the brilliance of George Romero and how it brought on The Walking Dead and this whole host of dozens of films that are using some of his trademarks to really make the images in our mind more real. And the documentary style, I, I think, just it brought me back to that nine-year-old place. That's, that's the best way I could say it because there's just uncertainty with that. And then, oh, it's only in Pennsylvania. They found a way to kill him. Don't worry about it. They won't ever make it to California. And I'm like, yeah, but what if? And then years go by and you're like, okay, it wasn't real. I hate you guys. Yeah. Watching it in this context made me appreciate the film in and of itself. It is a fabulous movie. It is a great story. The constraints that George Romero had in making the film made it a much better movie. If he had had a huge budget, I don't think it would have come out as good as it did. But by having to do things really on the cheap, it created this situation where he had to include almost by necessity this sense of realism and this documentary style that we keep on talking about that just makes it so much more impactful than if it was just a Hollywood movie that you 
watched and you knew, okay, this is fake. This is a movie that someone can credibly say to a nine-year-old, this is a documentary and this is actually happening and a nine-year-old's going to say, shit, yeah, this is happening. Well, and little did we know that it would set the stage for so much sequel activity because it's such a rich environment. (laughs) And they had to make lots of sequels because it was in the public domain and they stopped making money off of it. Yeah, exactly. They had no choice. So that brings us to the end of the episode. I hope everybody enjoyed Night of the Living Dead. We will be back with another episode soon. Hope everybody has a great rest of your day. Take care and see you next time. Bye-bye. Copyright 2022, Patrick Dobbins and Kat Ricker.